Genesis 34, verse 7. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Genesis 34 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading, demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible, and we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. We really want to have a discussion and a conversation with you in these things. And really, that's the way that we want to try to to phrase everything that we do here with this podcast. Most people, I would say, and I hope this doesn't come across as egotistical, most people have not really been exposed to proper, what I would call proper and responsible study of, of God's word. Um, and, you know, someone even told me the other day, hey, I've got a theology degree. And uh, they got that from a university where probably none of the professors actually believe that the Bible is the word of God. So uh, we live in that kind of world that says, oh, yeah, I took Bible in college and I don't have any, I don't have to find anything out else more about it. Um, I know what it is. Whereas the proper true student of the Bible knows that this is a lifetime thing. This is something where we are constantly uh, looking at the Bible and considering the wisdom of these passages because this is timeless wisdom. This is wisdom that is going to help us, that's going to be an encouragement to us. And even more than that, it's true. Uh, We believe that the Bible is literally what God has uh, put into the hand of man and uh, shown to him, I say literally, through the words of Others, you can look at that in Second Peter one and other passages, of course. But anyway, uh, just wanted to make that clear before we start. We do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. We, you can find us on Facebook at uh, you search at Walking Through the Book. You'll find us there. You can email us at Walking Through the Book at ProtonMail dot com, or you can go to the website NorthColumbusChristians dot com. That's the website of the church that I work with, the North Columbus Church of Christ. And we actually have uh, multiple resources there, a couple of other podcasts that we maintain, as well as uh, as well as some articles that we put on there from time to time. So we encourage you to check out that website, uh, if at all possible. And uh, Bryant, uh, let's go over the flow of the program and uh, be sure and let everybody know how to get in touch with you. Yes, so uh, I work as the um, evangelist at the Garden City Church of Christ, west of downtown Savannah. We have a website, gardencitycoc.org, and uh, we're working on updating our our website. There hasn't been any new sermons posted on it for some time, so it might look out of date if you go there, but that is the the congregation and the right, um, right web address. We have a Facebook page that's kept more up to date. 
Um, and so if you're ever in the area and you need directions, uh, give us a call. Let us know. We'd love to help you get there and find the building. And uh, as far as the flow of the program, um, so we're going to be reading Genesis 34 and just starting with some initial observations after we read the text. And uh, after we kind of talk about some things that we noticed in the chapter itself, we'll be trying to look at maybe some themes that we noticed as well that connect to the greater picture of the book of Genesis or um, the bigger story of Israel, the Old Testament, and uh, maybe even connecting things into Jesus in the New Testament as well. And we always try to end with making some application from the text as well and trying to make it a little more personal. And so that's what we're going to be uh, trying to do today as we read and study Genesis 34. Genesis 34, Nadina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as wife. And make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you, If you become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came to the gate of their city, 
and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city, he did Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? Well, of course, as Bryant said, with the section on initial observations, we want to look at uh, some of the things that really stood out to us and some things that just jumped out at at us during this reading, Um, at least things that are immediately focused on in the context of the chapter, uh, as well as in the book of Genesis itself. I think we can discuss those things. And so... uh, it's it's really you know overall I would say this is probably uh, one of the darkest stories that we have. We were mentioning this and talking about this uh, darkest stories we have in Genesis, um, really until we get later on uh, to the story uh, of Judah and Tamar. But what are some things that sort of jumped out at you, Bryant, in this chapter? Well, I think just like what you were saying. I mean, this is a really surprising turn of events. This is. Um, Like if I was, if I had never read Genesis before, I feel like I would get here and I'd be like, whoa, wow, what is happening? You know, and it would just be so shocking. Um, I mean, it's just, it's really unexpected that one of the children of Jacob, you know, they go into the land and, you know, just to put it plainly, she's raped by um, this prince uh, of the land. Um, Yeah, just, it's just very surprising. That's, that's the first thing that really sticks out to me. Hmm. And, you know, it's amazing to me, like one of the things that really struck me in this reading is how passive Jacob is in this story. 
Um, yeah, that's interesting too. You know, he, he comments on it at the end, you know, in verse 30, you've troubled me. <laughs> and it's, it's, that's an interesting thing to say too. And there's some, definitely some things we're going to get into, uh, with, with one of the other sections. So, but, um, you know, it's not Jacob himself that's seeking to make this right. I don't, I don't know what exactly to make of this in the immediate context, oh, but, um, boy. yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think Brian and I are thinking about the same thing. Maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, but it is kind of, you know, it is kind of amazing that you see Jacob in this passive role here. Yeah, no, that is, that is really interesting. No, I, I just think that's, that's so interesting because, um, that was actually what I was gasping about. There's a point in that, that I had never thought about before that I think I want to talk about in our theme section. Yeah. But that is really interesting. You know, you don't get the impression in any of this that, you know, because obviously we see the rage of Levi and Simeon, especially. Mm -hmm. But I mean, of course, Jacob is her father. You know, is he not grieved as well? You know, and there's no doubt that he is. Right. You know, and I just think there's there's like a whole well of points in that, that I'd never realized before. You know, so just I appreciate you focusing in on that the way that you did, because I think that that may be one of the most important points of this chapter. You know, one funny thing is it, it really seems like Shechem is trying to uh, put together what we call a shotgun wedding. I mean, is that <laughs> yeah. kind of what's, what's going on? Because, you know, and that's, it's, it's kind of sad because he's, he, you know, again, it goes back to the common theme. I think that we keep seeing, uh, that's re- uh, associated with sin in the book of Genesis is this lack of restraint, a lack of holding back, mm-hmm. you know? Oh man, there's another point. Yeah. Think wow. about, think about how, how well this might've mm-hmm. gone if Shechem had just seen her and appreciated her and try to talk to to the family about, Hey, I'd like to marry this woman. You know, if that's all he had done, you know, um, maybe that would have gone a lot better. Uh, now I don't know. Um, as far as, you know, we're, we're going to see some other things later on that, that kind of get in the way of this sort of idea happening, right? A Jew marrying a Gentile. But I don't really think that that is completely formed right now. Uh, but here's one other thing to note, too. Even if his actions were a little bit better and even if his motives were a little bit better on that point, I, I think we kind of see in verses... uh in verses 23, you know, actually in verse 23, the motive is exposed because, you know, Shechem and Hamor are talking to the men of their city and they're saying, hey, aren't their livestock and their property and every annual animal of theirs be ours? You know, it's it's maybe for Shechem, it's motivated on this on this lust toward Dinah. But at the same time, the way they're selling it to everybody else is, hey, their stuff is going to be ours. You know, even if Shechem's motivation was good and his actions beforehand were good, I think the motive is really exposed in verse 23, or at least it's the way that they sell this idea to everyone else among their tribe or town or whatever you want to call it. Because, uh, you know, they're saying, isn't all their stuff going to be ours? So it's not so much about Dinah, it's more about the stuff, it would seem. Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. 
I think it's obvious as well that the people of Shechem were operating under a totally different moral code than the people of Israel. Yes. Like it doesn't seem like Shechem thought there was anything wrong with what he did to uh, Dinah. Are we pronouncing it Dinah or Dina? I don't care, man. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) I'll say Dinah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, but it, it just, it seems like Shechem and his father don't see any problem at all with what, what they had done. And I think maybe that shows the corruption that was in Canaan already as Abraham uh, was wandering through it. Uh, you know, that raping a girl is like, cause it says he spoke tenderly to her. So it's almost like he assumed she was okay with it too. Like, you know, cause I imagine he was saying very sweet things to her and really, you know, being very kind. And it's like, he just raped her, you know, like, what is this yeah. insanity, you know? And then, then his father has the audacity to go to Israel who knows what happened and then say, Oh, Hey, we want to have your daughter as my son's wife. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, there's no apology. (laughs) There's no attempt to like make restitution. It's just, you know, Hey, you should give your girl to my son. I guess there's just the assumption in the Canaanite culture that women are just for sexual fun, you know, or like to be treated as prostitutes. And I think that's like verse 31 where the Israel's sons say, well, you know, should we just let him treat our sister as a harlot? So I think, I think that is really interesting, you know, cause, um, I, there's just a lot to say on that, you know, so I guess I'll just, I'll, I'll just keep it there. I was about to go beyond. Well, well, here's a good question for us to focus on maybe right now. Is there anything other than revenge, is there anything really guiding Simeon and Levi's actions here? Mm. I think that's an interesting question. I mean, is there any way that we can defend them? I mean, I, I think someone could easily make a case, you know, how dare you insult us like that? How dare you do that to my sister? But I would argue that what they did to them would be arguably just as bad as what Shechem did to, to Dinah. I mean, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, they killed everyone <laughs> like yeah. the men, at least. I mean, there was no man left. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe I could, maybe I could understand just a little if they just went and took care of Shechem. But even then, you know, I mean, we're talking about a book that the, the first major sin from one person to another, right? I'm not talking about the first sin ever, but the first sin against one person to another is murder. Mm. And that's that's established so foundationally that God does not tolerate that and that God, act, in fact, will exile those that do that. Um, but, Interesting. Uh, you know, we're going to see some things about uh, uh, the sons of Jacob. That, that by the time Joseph comes around, we're going to see some things where they they don't really have the right kind of focus. And they're, they're, they actually have become fairly wicked in their imaginings, at least toward Jacob. So, I don't know. That's just, just something that I feel needs to be said. That maybe this is just the first uh, first inklings of that kind of thinking. That they're going to delve into later on 
and, and kind of on that too, and this is probably something I want to talk more about in the theme section, but think about all the different compromises they would have had to have made to really become one with the people of Shechem. Mm-hmm. You know, like the moral compromises, the compromising of their identity, the compromising of their uniqueness as the people of God's promise, the compromising of being sojourners in a foreign land. Because now it would have become like, okay, now here is, we're, we're people of this Shechem territory specifically, you know? Yeah, there's there's something there's something there that I think is very needed in application that I think we're going to get to. Yeah. Um because there's something even among I would call the brotherhood <laughs> that maybe we can kind of delve into there. Um but uh yeah, no I I think that's a very good point, you know when does joining together with somebody in something really uh, destroy part of who you are right, or right. take away, take away what you are entirely. And, uh, and, and I, I, I want to be careful with saying that too, because we're saying this from a spiritual standpoint, right. this has nothing to do with race. This has nothing to do with background or how you look or anything like that. Now, I don't know if the, the people back then were thinking about that or not, but the the fact remains is that that the yeah, well, we'll we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um so, yeah, uh Jacob is passive in the story. Dinah is passive in this story. Uh you don't have any words from her at all. Um yeah, or any real action at all. She kind of, you know, falls out of the story fairly early on. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting to see how, how much involvement everybody has here. And speaking of involvement with everyone, it's also fascinating that everybody in Shechem was willing to be circumcised so that this guy could get his wife, you know, I can't help, but, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny in a way. I hate, I don't, I'm not laughing at the situation, of course, but. I mean, if I was a guy in Shechem, you know, not, you know, in that town and here comes Shechem and Haymore and they're like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm afraid I'd be one of the guys like, look, I'm out on this. You guys can do whatever you want. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, but what a, what a devious plot. What a, what a deceitful plan that Jacob's sons, uh, hatched together. Yeah, it's pretty. It is pretty devious. I, I would agree. Yep, and uh, and take them while they're in pain, and kill them all with the edge of the sword. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's the third day. There you go. Yeah, I don't know where we would go with that, but. <laughs> <laughs> just the way you said that too there you go <laughs> you said it third day good job <laughs> there's just a lot of third a lot of third day emphasis is it's kind of interesting to see the where where the third day emphasis is emphasis is or emphasized where where, where there's third day instances and what exactly happens in them there's a a sister, um, Heidi Bunting, who did a very 
fast uh, Bible reading in three months, uh, I think was the goal. And she was noting all the different three-day instances that she was noticing as she read through it. And I thought that was pretty fascinating mm-hmm. to see that, see her document that. Hmm. Do you know what the final tally was? I don't. It'd be interesting to ask, though. Now, in the theme section, we want to focus more on the big picture of the Bible, you might say, the strings that we need to be tying all throughout to recognize and appreciate, I would say, the pattern of the Bible. There is a pattern to the Bible. There's a context to the Bible. You have 66 books that were written across, uh, you know, four to 5,000 years uh, that, that are all completely harmonious in what they say. Uh, the, they all push toward the same message. And uh, some of the big, bigger things that we might tie into this, uh, I do think that there is there's something here about how, you know, you look at the situation in general, and we dealt with this a little bit during the previous section. You have a potential marriage from an outside group with the tribe of Israel itself, with the, with the family. And if you look in the law of Moses, I mean, it's pretty plain that you're not going to marry the foreigner. You're not going to take their wives. You're not going to take their children. Um, and, and that's, that's under the law of Moses. Of course, we're not under that today, but, um, this became so pronounced even by the time of the first century, you know, this, this wall between Jew and Gentile, it became so pronounced that, you know, that, that, that Pharisees and, and Sadducees, rulers of the Jews, would actually come in from the market and wash their hands ceremoniously, ceremonially. And, uh, uh, you know, and this is the thought that, well, maybe I touched a Gentile while I was out in the market. And, and it goes to that extreme case where they try to push that over on other people's heads and things such as that. But when we look at this, when we look back at this, this is just one family, right? Um, given all this, uh, we can see how uh, the people of Israel could have looked back at the story and maybe looked at this as a cautionary tale as, well, this is, you know, this is what can happen if you're not careful around some of those other people. Um, but the outrage, outrage of the sons concerning this deed, of course, there's a number of different places in the Bible. We can find people outraged at others over uh, various things. But, you know, what, what are some of the things that Brian, that, that you would say really tie into other sections of the Bible? Um, and do you have anything else Uh, to say about that distinction between Jew and Gentile and how does that fall into what we just read? That's a really interesting thread. Uh, I think there's a couple things. 
think one of the most interesting things on that is the Gibeonites and the nature of the Gibeonites getting into Israel um, and Rahab as well. Rahab and the Gibeonites were both Canaanites and God, uh, you know, his, his, his destination for the Canaanites was all condemnation like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Well, the Gibeonites became such an important part of Israel that in 1 Samuel 22, God sent a three-year famine on Israel in David's time because Saul wanted to annihilate the Gibeonites. And then I just noticed this just yesterday. I thought this was so cool. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 7, there are Gibeonites rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. That blew my mind when I saw that. Wow. I never paid attention to that. Um, it's impressive. Yeah, it just totally blew my mind when I saw that. But that's that's very, very different from the end of the book of Ezra when the people have to separate from their intermingled marriages. I think in scripture there's there's a distinction God makes between those who are willing to completely abandon the identity they once had and held in their place of residence where they were before they came to God's people. There's a big difference between that and the Israelites seeking to adapt the cultures of others instead. And I think when they would look for women of other forbidden places that God forbid, because he didn't, he didn't forbid them from marrying anyone um, outside of Israel, but particular nations of, you know, within Canaan, especially God did forbid uh, marriage. But in, in Ezra, actually, let me, let me just turn there. Um, to really emphasize what what the problem was, and that the idea of the idea of losing your identity. So Ezra chapter nine, verse two, mentions that the people had taken the uh, the daughters of the land as wives for themselves and for their sons. That the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands, and indeed the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in the unfaithfulness. Um, and there's, there's another place where it mentions that, uh, some of the people's children couldn't even speak the language of Israel. Uh, and so they were just completely losing, they were completely losing their identity. Um, so anyway, I think, I think it really is a matter of, a matter of the preservation of a holy identity and the things that compromise that identity and really seeing being holy as something that needs to be preserved at all costs. I think there's, there's just so much to say about that. So I think maybe I'll just stop there with that and talk more about that as we continue to talk. When you look at the old law, the law of Moses concerning the the law about the sojourner, you know, someone who, but the stranger who comes among you, uh, there's a nuance here because on the one hand, God is warning his people against the peoples around them and don't intermingle with them. And as you say, with, with Canaan, don't, don't intermix with them or marry with them. And of course, the reason again was not race. It wasn't a racial thing. It was an aspect where he was saying, you're not going to absorb their religion. You know, he's concerned about the influence that they have. Um, but you know the in in Leviticus and in Numbers when it's talking about the stranger who's among you, uh, he's to be accepted. Um, 
he's to be uh he's to be one who is among you um now the only uh the only real uh holding back of that was that he was not going to be able to be present among the assembly of Israel that was the only limit for what we would call a proselyte but um but yeah this I don't want to go too far into that because we are going to focus on that, Lord willing, uh, down the road at some point in this podcast. But um, but it's an interesting balance because on the one hand, God is warning them about other cultures, other people. Uh, he's warning them against uh, losing their identity. And again, I would argue that it's a spiritual identity to remember their God, to remember the way they're supposed to be living. Um but at the same time, there is this uh, push to really accept the proselyte. And even uh, among, you know, w- when Jesus comes along in the first century, uh, he seems to always make time for Gentiles. Um, and even with like the Syrophoenician woman, um, I think it's in Luke, where he basically implies that she's like a dog to him. And thankfully, her pride doesn't let her, doesn't get in the way. And she's able to get healing for her daughter, but um, but Jesus took that time with Gentiles. Um, so, you know, may, maybe we're stretching this too far, but uh, it is an interesting, you know, back and forth when you think about these things. Well, I think there's just so much on that, you know. Like, for instance, in the Law of Moses, you know, the things about only plant a seed of one kind at one place of land, you know, don't mix the seed. And then your clothing was to be of one fabric. You're not to mix the fabric, you know, and you're to have one measure, you know, and, uh, one weight. And there's this, all this oneness, you know, in, in the law of Moses with all these things that can seem really unusual, but it's the idea that God wanted them to understand singularity and unity, um, that when you when you come into God's nation, there's there's a singularity about about things, you know, and it's it's not that you know we need to wear only one type of material in our clothing, you know, today or anything like that. It's just God was using physical things to convey that that spiritual point that you know God's God's nature and holiness is not to be mixed and shouldn't shouldn't be mixed, and we have the option. We have the option to do that mixing, but at great consequence, you know, we lose the singularity completely. And, and I think that's a part of the, the, the nature is how delicate that oneness was, because if you start mixing a different material in your clothing, well, now it's, it's not one anymore, you know, as even as little as you put in, it's just, it's just not one. And for it, so for it to be one, it needs to be one all the way through, not just in the majority of it. The same with the field. If you had you know, one seed mixed in that was different from all the others. Well, it's, it's not one anymore, even though the majority of the seed is the one seed. Um, you know, so there's just so many interesting lessons on that, you know, and in, in second Corinthians chapter six, the Corinthians were really struggling with this as many churches both did and continue to. And Paul told the Corinthians in second Corinthians six, not to be bound with unbelievers not to have partnership with, with lawlessness or darkness. And he asks these questions like, you know, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harm, harmony has Christ with Belial? Basically with the way that 
they had the law of Moses, the way that God had the law of Moses set up for the people, there are these unusual laws that involved oneness and unity to where it, I think it displayed how fragile and easy to break that concept was, you know, when people had the option of whether or not they would follow it. Like if you put a little bit of blue thread in clothing that was all white or Maybe that's not a good example because it's still the same material. Because I think I think the idea was if your yeah, clothing little, was made of cotton, a little cotton in with uh, you know uh, some other form of textile. I don't know right, whatever right, exactly. other form they might have some straw or something. I don't know. Right, <laughs> right. And I, I think that's the idea, you know. And if if you put in even just a little bit of something else, it's no longer just the one material. And it doesn't matter if you even just put in a little bit. You know, it's still just not all one material. And the same with you know a vineyard. If you uh, if you have just one extra seed of some different kind in a vineyard that is all like apple trees or something, you know, well, it's, it's not all apple trees anymore, you know, even if it's just the majority are apple trees. And that, that idea I think is something that's beyond just the law of Moses, you know, just like what you've been saying, Stephen, those trans, those principles, the spiritual principles transcend just, the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. I think you probably see that most clearly in second Corinthians six, 14 through chapter seven, verse one, where the Corinthians, you know, they were still, you know, they were gathering as a church. They were following, I think probably a lot of the things that they needed to be doing, but they were mingling themselves though with false teaching and people who were presenting themselves in a very, anti-spiritual way, you know, they were being very arrogant and trying to cultivate a more uh, carnal way of thinking about the gospel. And, you know, in verse 14, Paul told the Corinthians, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's the key thing, I think, in verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And in chapter 7, he says, you know, because we have these promises, we need to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. And I think that idea of perfecting holiness is we need to take the things of God, the spirit of God. And we need to strive to immerse ourselves in that in, in whatever application we can completely without mingling holiness with, with sin or unrighteousness or the spirit of the world or the love of the world. Yeah. It's a, it, it's something that is a timeless uh, aspect that God is, is he's expecting his people at any given time to be holy and again, we've probably mentioned on this podcast before, when you hear that term holy, you need to think of the word separate because that's really what that that word means. And what does that mean in terms of the child of God? It means you're separated from other people. But you know, let's get more into that in the next section. But uh, especially here, um, you know, the, I think they make the right call by not marrying Dinah to this to this guy to check him. But at the same time, you know, they, they, they balance this <laughs> right call with a very devious, very deceitful plan. And, uh, 
you know, that's another thing to consider is that, you know, all the times when God's people are not straight up about their intentions and what they're going to do, and they try to be devious and, uh, and, and crafty, and we can all be that way. Um, but, um, you know, the ways that, the ways that they trick them though, this is, this is where it really, again, it goes back to this place where I'm like, "Mm, I need to be careful about commenting on this because, you know, when, when God's people after their, uh, slavery in Egypt and they're, they're, they're led up, uh, by Moses up to basically to the Jordan, you would say to that area. Um, they wander in the wilderness after that about 40 years. And then after that, they finally do cross the Jordan without Moses. Uh, and, um, Joshua leads them in the conquest of Canaan. What's interesting about this is that that's, this is basically what they do in the conquest of Canaan. They don't, they're not deceitful about things, but they just go through and they just storm through and they kill everybody. (laughs) Now, the difference between that moment, you know, those times and this time is that there's no evidence or text here that God tells them to do this. In fact, this whole story is absent of God saying or doing anything directly. Um, but it's just sort of interesting here that, that they are doing some things that their, their, and their, their descendants are going to be doing, uh, called to do called upon to do by God down the road. Yeah, it is interesting that kind of on that, that I think the reason they did this was some sense of like, maybe this isn't the right way to say it, but righteous indignation. Yeah. You know, and just this burning passion for justice that just seems like it really went too far, you know, but within that though, I think, you know, you kind of think about, um, well, I'm going to try to say this in a way that a brother said it. So there's a brother teaching the book of Acts at Garden City right now, and he was reading Genesis, and he actually texted me something unusual that I didn't understand at first, and he was talking about the jealousy that Dinah's brothers had when they found out she had been violated. And he related that to the ways the ways that the Jews must have felt when they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and they had people leaving the law of Moses to go follow Jesus. And if you did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, how that would look like this adulterous offense against the law of Moses, you know, this, you know, you're, you're, you're defiling this, this, this holy culture that we have completely. Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know if that quite makes sense. And the, and the conversation him and I had, it was really powerful to consider that, but just that idea of just this, this burning jealousy that is taken so far, you know, just like Paul, when he, um, wanted to destroy the, the church, uh, when he was in that condition, it's that idea of that, that burning jealousy to want to just take it as far as possible. Could, um, could we say it's interesting to think they about fail to apply restraint or self-control 
in a different way than Shechem failed to apply mm-hmm. self-control. Like he didn't control himself in right. the, the case of Dinah, but you know, here's the here's the distinction. We've already covered the fact that you know Shechem and his people seem to be completely ignorant of these things, and the fact of what Shechem was doing seems like it was business as usual there. Whereas here's God's people. They're supposed to know better than to just go off and and just murder people on a basis of revenge. Um, right. So, you know, again, it gets back to the person who didn't know and committed the offense and the person who did know and yet still committed the offense, as Jesus talks about in the book of Luke. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something interesting to consider, too, that... You know, again, this is this is a story where, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> maybe the only person that is defendable is Jacob here, because, uh, you know, Jacob is so passive in it. But then it's like, well, you know, at the end, all he's complaining about is that you know everybody else is going, they're going to attack me now. It's the same kind of fear that he had, like with Esau. You know, it's interesting on that note too how. Um Dinah really didn't do anything wrong in this whole account either. Yeah. You know, she was, she just, you know, went to go observe the people of the land and everything else just kind of spiraled out of control from there. I think one interesting thing is the idea of separation and covenant in Genesis. Mm-hmm. So Esau and Jacob were reconciled in chapter 33. Um, so there was like, there was a being joined back together in a sense, even though Esau and Jacob separated afterwards, you know, and the covenant of separation, that's been a, just a very consistent theme. And and so I, I do think it is interesting that in chapter 34, you still see the idea of separation. And I think it's interesting that the emphasis throughout the text when Shechem and, and his father are talking is to be one, you know, become one people. And of course, that's not at all how it worked out. You know, by the end of it, there was a pretty distinct separation that that happened from that. Um, so I, I think I think you still see almost like the nature of God's covenant, even though sin was committed within this account. That there's still something about the nature of God's covenant with His people hidden within the story, kind of like when Abraham lied about Sarah, you know, and God was gonna punish Egypt because Abraham lied. Um, Abraham was in the wrong. Abraham, you know, he sinned in his lying. And yet there was still something within that revealed about God's covenant and separation. So I just think that's, that's at least worth kind of triggering maybe some, some thoughts is thinking about that with this. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Oh, Stephen, 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 Stephen. Those who are not true descendants of Israel, who, who try to be circumcised, set themselves up to be destroyed. Mm. So like Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, the point made is, there is that true circumcision at the end of chapter 2 is the circumcision of the heart. And it mentions that the law really was meant to just to give the knowledge of sin. And if a Jew took pride only in their being circumcised, they were just as lost as a Gentile who did not know God. Mm. But their condition really was worse because they would feel 
a sense of justification having been circumcised, or as a Gentile would have no means to feel justified in God's eyes, having nothing to go off of. So Genesis makes the point in chapter three, well, I mean, what's the advantage of a Jew if circumcision doesn't seem to give you some righteous advantage? And the point he makes is, well, I mean, being entrusted with the oracles of God and knowing God's word and being close to God through the culture that the law created, you know, is an advantage. But but the point, though, is made that the circumcised and the uncircumcised alike are all under condemnation, and circumcision is more just a circumcision of the flesh. And you see that in the prophets, that those who are circumcised and yet in their hearts uncircumcised, they received great judgment. I think about the destruction of Jerusalem and events like that. And then ultimately, the second time Jerusalem was destroyed uh, by the Roman authorities, when Jesus had already ascended, the church was growing outside of Jerusalem. And the things that happened in Jerusalem by Jewish people are just atrocious mm-hmm. uh, to think about. And so it's almost like, you know, in, 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 in the ways that the Jews would experience God's wrath was, was a greater severity because they knew the truth and yet um, forsook it all the more. And so I, I, I wonder if that may, may or may not be stretching the principle too far, but, you know, just the idea that when, a, when someone who's not a true descendant circumcises themselves, you know, it's not, it's not that they really get in, you know? Right. You know, the outer, and, and, and that, that, that is a very, very good point too, because that outer part of it, you know, and I think many Jews might've viewed themselves in that way that, you know, I'm a Jew because I was circumcised. Whereas the reality is that the Bible talks about a circumcision of the heart. And, uh, and certainly this is, this would be related to that in the sense that here are these people that are ignorantly, uh, wanting to do this just on a basis of we're going to get their daughter, we're going to get their stuff. <laughs> um, and, and there's something to be said there too, that, you know, when, when, when people who are outside of the kingdom look in and that's what they want, but they try to get it, uh, you know, in a different way. I mean, I'm thinking of Simon, the sorcerer acts eight. Um, you know, he tries to buy his way into, having the power of the Holy spirit at his command. And it's very similar in the sense that his motives are definitely not pure. Um, it certainly seems like he wants to be able to bamboozle the people again, like he had before. Um, so yeah, that, that would definitely be uh, a parallel that I would see there. Um, but you know, that's a, that's a very well, well-made point, Bryant, because you know, all throughout the Bible, God's people are indeed expected to be separate. And those who are outside of that, you can't just necessarily waltz in and be a part of that completely and totally as if you were born in that way. Thankfully, when Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for everyone to become a part of that, as we see, you know, proven very easily in multiple places, but notably Acts 10 and and other, other passages. I think one last theme that I noticed is like what you were mentioning earlier, just kind of going off of more of the idea of how passive Jacob was, uh, that he really wanted peace 
And it seems like he saw himself as being vulnerable in the land, which is also interesting because a Christian, you know, when we really imitate Jesus, it puts us in a very purposefully vulnerable position. One example I've thought about with this is 1 Kings 13, when a young prophet from Judah, uh, he went up north to Israel to warn Jeroboam about judgment that was coming on Israel. And God told him to not eat any food or drink any water on his journey, his entire journey, and then to take a different path on his way back down to Judah. And on his way back, you know, he had obeyed the instruction very well with Jeroboam, but on his way back, an old prophet deceived him and found him underneath a tree resting and told him an angel spoke to him and told him that he could eat food and drink water at his house. So the younger prophet went and then a lion ended up killing him on the road for his disobedience. And just an interesting point from that story is God's command was keeping the young prophet in a vulnerable position. And the temptation that the older prophet fed off of is there's a way to get out of that position. And it sounded very appealing, even though it was a lie. And in 1 Kings 13, it it just even bluntly says in parentheses that the old prophet was just Mm -hmm. lying to the young prophet. I think there's something in that, that, you know, God wants us to be a peaceable people and that, um, you know, we really are in a, in a, in a world where we're, when, when we increase in our faith, it does make us more gentle and delicate and vulnerable. Um, and it puts us in a position where ultimately we're forced to really desperately trust in the Lord, really desperately trust in the Lord. And I think you see that in the Psalms, in the prayers of the Psalms, that these Psalmists didn't view retaliation as an option even though most of the Psalms are written by David, who was a master of war and battle, you see David in just an incredibly vulnerable position throughout the Psalms, which is just really interesting. It's very good. Uh, that's a very good point. Um, I, it was something that I was thinking of too, but I wasn't um, wasn't exactly sure how to phrase it. And uh, you know, because again, I do think that Jacob, you know, as you said, Jacob does feel very vulnerable in that land. And, uh, I, I, I can't imagine Jacob learning this and seeing it and, and understanding what happened to his daughter and not being outraged about it. Um, but he does indeed control himself. It seems in his reaction toward this. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. Cause like think about Romans 12 verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. (laughs) One thing I think we've learned about Jacob so far is he had proven character. He had suffered a lot and his character had been refined to put him into the position of people like Abraham and Isaac, right? Um, Like God had helped Jacob to live the reality of the covenant out when he was in Laban's household. And I wonder if a problem is Jacob's children had, hadn't yet made the covenant their own yet. You know, they hadn't really, their character hadn't been proven like Jacob's had. Um, And so I wonder if there's just this, at, at this point we learn that there's this huge difference 
and just the gentleness, the character, the peaceableness, the the faith of Jacob compared to the violence, the bitterness, the anger in his children. Yeah, and it, it makes me think of well, you know, it, it makes me think of the the distinctions between how God reacts to these things and how sometimes his children react to such things. Um, you know, how mm. much has God put up with us and how much does That's God good. continually uh, suffer yeah. through with us? And yet wow. when, when I slight someone else, really I mean, point. or when someone slights me, <laughs> how, how easy wow. for it has, how e- easy is it for me to just hold on to that? as we think about application, remember uh, you can listen to as many sermons as you want to throughout your life and go to as many Bible studies as you want to throughout your life um, and even listen to podcasts like this, but uh, until you actually um, as, as they say, put the rubber to the road and actually consider how does this apply to me? What does this say about my life? Uh, that's what this section is all about and it's what we uh, end up with. Um we were talking a lot about how just now, how Jacob reacts to this. And, and there, there are things that we can learn to uh, absorb and, and understand, you know, when someone hurts my family like this, you know, what's the world going to tell you to do? Well, you go and hurt them back. And that's the natural response. I think that we, we push ourselves to, but at the same time, uh, you know, this great example of Joe, uh, uh, Jacob, just kind of holding back in this way. Um, again, fairly passive in the story. And again, in, in, in a negative sense, we learn that to just rashly go out and to uh, be extreme and vicious in your response, uh, that's exactly what happens with, uh, with the sons, uh, specifically Simeon and Levi, in hatching up this scheme. And... Uh, you know, there's a lot to, to consider there, but specifically I want to kind of go back to this idea of, you know, one people seeking out another people and saying, hey, we're going to be one. We're going to be together. And this is something that I think we've seen very clearly, at least in this country over the past, um, I would say, 40 years, 40 or 50 years. Um, the movement toward what I would call ecumenism, um, the the concept that we're all part of the you know one big happy family and we're all going to heaven someday and, it's, and it takes different forms but primarily I would say it, you see it a lot in denominationalism and things such as that you've got all these different slices of the same pie and that whole pie is going to go to heaven and uh, we're all different parts of the same church. There's a number of scriptural you know. A number of scriptures I would try to bring someone to to consider that and to look at that uh, because I would disagree with that with that statement. But there's something that's even happening among what I would call churches of Christ today. Um, and Bryant, I don't know if you're interested in talking about this, but I'm going to go ahead and bring it up, and we'll just see where this goes. 
Um, th- there's a lot of discussion. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, not every Church of Christ is the same. Those who don't, aren't familiar with um, with congregations that call themselves Churches of Christ, um, there are some it's similar, I guess you would say, to some uh, Baptist churches or Methodist churches. You've got differing viewpoints in different places, and uh, the church Churches of Christ do not have a single. Uh, conventional council or anything, any kind of central organization, right? And so that means uh, ultimately it's biblical because you don't see any central organization over the churches of the first century. But at the same time, you 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 do have uh, differing viewpoints among them. So it creates this atmosphere where these different congregations can have these different viewpoints. But there was a division in the 50s and 60s um, that really focused on issues such as, you know, should the church be providing, uh, you know, homes for orphans? Should the church be providing common meals for the congregation? Should the church be involved in interconnected mission work uh, where uh, one church handles the work and all these churches funnel the money into that one church to do that work? Or should the churches directly do the work themselves? Um, you know that that was really the the scope of those uh, discussions and and those divisions, and now it seems like those who uh, went that way, which I think was the clear majority of congregations, are now beginning to realize that they're dwindling down. At least uh, many, um, uh, I would say, aspects of those congregations and those brethren are realizing that so many of their people are leaving for maybe a more progressive mindset i would i would say one that just sort of embraces really the scope of the world and 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 does not appreciate the authority of the bible um and 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 seeks for something other seeks for some other pattern than the way that we communicate and the way that god communicates to us through the bible regardless i i hope this isn't hope i'm not ranting on about this but um you know there is a push today among Christians to kind of th- talk to each other. And, uh, and that's a good thing, right? I can learn from anybody. And I want to sit down and study the Bible with anybody. But I do think there is uh, something to consider. You know, what happens if one of these congregations that for so long has embraced uh, using the money in this way, using the building in this way, so on and so forth, uh, reaches out to a congregation that believes that that's wrong. Well, obviously, someone's going to have to give up something. <laughs> uh, either they're going to have to give up their conviction, or they're going to have to give up their liberty. And uh, and uh, I, you know, again, I, I, maybe I'm not really focusing on this in the right way, but I, maybe there's something to be said here about being cautionary and making sure that the decisions that we make as Christians and as congregations are done not on the basis of what is convenient or what feels best, even though we may hope to grow and we could see possibly a lot of positive things happening. Uh, maybe we need to make sure that the choices that we make are based more on conviction than convenience. I think uh, in this story, Shechem and Hamor and those others, they're taking, they're making this decision out of convenience and out of, I would say, lust and desire, uh, rather than saying this is the right thing to do. (laughs) 
And whereas it seems like at least initially there is this sense among, uh, you know, the children of Jacob that, you know, this is wrong. As you mentioned, Bryant in verse 31, should, should he treat our sister like a harlot? That's not just, that's not right. Um, but anyway, I, I don't want to be um, ranting about that, but I, I'd like your input on that, Bryant. I know I, I kind of talked a long time about that. No, I think that kind of goes with what you're we talking about earlier is to consider all the compromises that have to be made to join together uh, when the joining together is, is actually a compromise of identity and, and, and conviction and uh, standard. You know, I've been listening to some lessons from Larry Rouse that he's been teaching in Auburn at the uh, uh, the Auburn Church of Christ. Um, he's been giving some lessons about fellowship, and one thing he, he mentioned is, you know, when when fellowship is compromised, meaning wanting to have wanting to have a, a unity with people because you want to be liked or you know, you don't like, you don't like being so distinct, you know, kind of, cause it, it can wear you out. You know, if you don't, if you don't rely on the Lord being the odd one out and being looked at as unnecessarily dogmatic and just way too picky, way too specific can really wear you out. And you think like, wow, this is just really kind of a downer, you know, is being on the side of things all the time. Um, but, but really that's a joy and a blessing. And I, I think seeing, what God has said and seeing who he is and standing on that needs to be seen as a great joy. You know, being distinct is a joyous thing. And I think that relates to a lot of things, you know, like second Corinthians chapter six, you know, it's, it's not just matters of um, congregational fellowship with the greater religious world at large or things like that. You know, I think it also relates to what I'm choosing to invest in personally uh, maybe relationships I'm choosing to invest in that could actually become a compromise of my love for God or my my convictions or even just the convictions that God wants me to have. Um, you know, there's there's psalms where the psalmists, especially in Book One, uh, Psalm One through Forty One, talks a lot about being distinct and hating hypocrisy and wanting nothing to do with those who pretend, those who don't actually truly love God, but who are just kind of being deceitful in their commitment. Uh, Psalm 26, verse 3 says, For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. So I just think that's, you know, an interesting relation is the psalmist took great joy in being fully committed to God and his truth and walking in the truth. Um, so I guess, I guess that's my, my ramble on, on top of that. Uh, very well said. Uh, again, I, I don't want to speak out of turn. And if uh, any of our listeners would like to kind of set us straight on something. Maybe I said something that's, that's sort of off. I'm, I'm open to talking about those things. In fact, I mean, I would be happy to have uh, a whole episode if someone had a, a, a serious enough inquiry. And, uh, you know, maybe even if someone wanted to uh, be on the show, I, you know, maybe we could talk about that. But, uh, but at any rate, um, the whole thing, and I'm not saying that this is a complete parallel to that. 
but in any kind of situation, you know, let's say the, that a Baptist church reached out to your local church or a Catholic church reached out to your old local church and said, hey, um, let's get together. We both believe in Jesus. We all, you know, we believe that he existed and we believe that he died for our sins. And, uh, you know, there, there's something to be said about, again, that great lesson, I think, that we find of restraint, of saying, wait a minute, let's make sure that this is something that's going to be good for us. And, uh, you know, to properly focus on those right things, um, I think is just really indisposable. I mean, we just can't, we can't serve God thinking that we're just going to fall into doing the right things. Uh, we have to be prepared. Um, you know, the, the, the reaction of Jacob's, sons toward this situation i think is a very knee-jerk reaction they they spend this whole chapter being reactionary about what has occurred and the lesson to someone that's saying but it's not right they shouldn't treat me that way this was not the right way to handle things um you know, the way f- to, to build up someone like that is to say, listen, you know, we can't immediately ride out on a white horse and go fix everything. That's not what God is expecting. Uh, God is expecting us to handle what we can handle and do what we can do within the scope of our ability. If it's beyond the scope of our boundaries, you know, that's not where we're supposed to be working. And, uh, and again, it really, the more I'm thinking about, the more... Uh, the more I am elevating where Jacob is in this story, of course, and, and Dinah as well. Yeah, and I think on that too, verse 31, when they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? I think they missed the point. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, because it's, it's easy to, even in subtle ways, feel justified doing or saying something because you know that the other person did something wrong. You know, like, for instance, I had someone who's not a Christian, but it was t- somebody that I'd, I'd been starting a study with. And when I would talk to them, um, they would talk about other people a lot. And at one point, I just told them, I said, you know, we, we really can't talk like that. You know, we can't be gossiping about other people in our conversation. And they just, they really blew up big time. Um, mm. And one of the things that they said is it's not gossip, it's the truth. You know, it's like, again, it's like, well, I think you've missed the point. You know, the point isn't whether or not it's true. The point is it's gossip. And I think sometimes, you know, think about Facebook, you know, you get mistreated and then you post on Facebook about it. And it's like, well, I mean, people on Facebook aren't the people who mistreated you. So what does that, what does that do? You know, how does that really, how does that help? You know, (laughs) people, people do that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you saying people are passive aggressive on Facebook? I've never seen that (laughs) happen at all. No. And and really, though, we have to be really careful with those mediums, you know, feeling like we need an outlet to because it can be a subtle way of revenge, you know, that I'm going to make this big mm. post about how I was mistreated and kind of keep it under the veil of warning people to not be like that. And then I justify myself, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm just trying to warn people to not not be like this because obviously this really hurt me, you know, and maybe maybe that sounds extreme, but I think sometimes I can deceive myself into feeling like I'm doing something righteous when really I'm actually trying to get some kind of revenge and I'm letting, I'm letting anger actually and bitterness stir in my heart to the point where I'm actually acting on it instead of praying and blessing, uh, praying for and blessing my enemies 
and letting God be the one who takes care of things while I take a more passive role. Those are, those are hard things because they're very unnatural. It really does require that I trust God as a good judge, that I know that he sees and that I also understand him to be the healer of my broken heart. Because people do do a lot of things that hurt and people do do a lot of things, especially when you put yourself in a vulnerable position in godliness. People do things all the time that can be very, very painful. You know, and we just, I, I do think that like Jacob, except even more so in the cross, Jesus could be reviled and not revile in return. And I really don't think he kept those things in his heart. And I think we, I think we see that clearly when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, those words mm. should have shaken the earth from its position when he said that. I mean, that those were, I think, some of the most powerful words that ever have come out of someone's mouth in all existence and ever will. You know, the fact that he could say that after everything that was being done to him by the people, the people whom he should have expected love and respect from. Um, and I, I think there's just mm. something very powerful to learn in, in all of that, you know, and to see these exaggerated instances and not just say, wow, you know, Jacob's sons are just a bunch of troublemakers, but actually to say, you know, in some way I do see that in myself, don't I, you know? Um, Cause just like that lady I mentioned who said, you know, it's not gossip, it's the truth. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of, of thinking like that, you know? So really it's, it's just an, a reflection of something within me that I have to be careful about. Yeah. It does make me think too about, you know, going back to, uh, you know, really, what the 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 interaction between the Jews and Jesus in the Book of John? Um, you know, there's a balance on this too, where, you know, for example, you know, Jesus tells them, you know, when the Jews are saying, in this is John eight forty eight, do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan, you are a Samaritan, and you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor the fa- my father, and you dishonor me. That, so I think there's something to be said there, you know, if, if we're looking for a way to really think about, well, how does this, you know, one of the best ways for me to think about is this gossip. Uh, the one thing that really helps me is like, would I be willing to say this to the person that I'm talking right. about? Right, right, right. Yep. And, That's and, the difference. And, you know, have I said that to that person? You know, I think there's a place where we can we can say to the person, Hey, you've wronged me. And this is, this is wrong. And from that point, I mean, it doesn't mean that you go out and you plaster all over town that, well, they did this to me, but, uh, you know, there is a place where we can say, you know, this is not right. And, and to say that this is, this is a wrong situation. And so again, I think, I think they're right. You know, should he treat our sister like a harlot? No way, no way. Uh, even if it was ignorant, you know, he bears that responsibility, but guess what? You made it 10 times worse by going and basically committing genocide. Uh, that, that does not seem like it was authorized by God whatsoever. Yeah. I think at least one more thing is in a sense, I understand the rage of Jacob's sons, it's almost like we need to feel that rage, but we need to channel it into the right direction. Like they could have been as offended as they were, as angry as they were, but channeled that into a way that was in it, in a way of love channeling it toward the Lord, you know, like 
you read the Psalms and you read Psalms sometimes and you're like, wow, this is, this is some pretty severe language that I'm reading here. You know, I mean, the, the psalmists hated sin, but they, they channeled that indignation toward the Lord and they channeled it to a place where they trusted God to take action. And that, that, that channeling of it kept them safe and secure in godliness because they were just being honest with how atrocious and wounding sin really is. And so there, there, there is the balance of not being so passive that I'm actually not affected at all by sin and I'm just not concerned about the effect of sin. There is a place where I learn how serious sin is and its consequence, consequence and I hate that consequence. But at the same time, I trust and love God so much and I love people so much and I know how far God is willing to go to save people and how God can save people and also that Satan is the person that is really behind sin. All of that just kind of creates a picture that helps balance these things in a way where I'm no longer the one who has to be the one acting on anger or even getting angry necessarily at all, but rather troubled and grieved by sin and imploring the Lord in a very honest way to take care of that himself. Yeah, putting it in front of the Lord, it's like... right. You know, when Sennacherib uh, is taunting Hezekiah through his messenger, you know, Hezekiah takes the letter and lays it out before the Lord and prays to God about it. Um, Acts chapter four, after the first time Peter and John are arrested, the prayer for boldness, you know, uh, that, that the disciples have starting in verse 23 but specifically, when you look in verse 29, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says there in that situation, when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And I think that was at least partly to uh, you know, God telling them, yes, I'm with you. You know, you've got the right attitude and the right focus. That needs to be our focus. I don't think we're going to have the place shaken where we're praying necessarily, but, um, you know, if you have that right motivation that, you know, uh, that, that you're not, as you said, Brian, you're not ignoring the wrong is, that has been done, but you're giving it up to God to fight that battle for you. Right. And, uh, and that is so, so needed today. And even in, in terms of, you know, we talked about divisions and the uh, uh, concepts of coming together with, you know, congregations that have been divided over years and years. You know, we need to remember that, that, that if we do face any troubles ahead uh, and, and maybe the same topics are going to be uh, discussed again and maybe they're going to divide again. Um, at the same time, we trust in God and we know that He's there to help us in these things. And we don't have to be the ones right. to make everything right right now. Right. Yep. And speaking of that, uh, making things right, I guess a last application is just thinking about Dinah. I don't think she felt very comforted through this whole situation. Um, I, If anything, this is just an assumption. She probably felt worse and more guilty uh, by the end of it. Mm. And she probably wished that her brothers would not have found out about anything. You know, she may have felt this huge sense of guilt. 
You know, when, when people are wronged or really hurt and they're wounded in their heart badly, when they confide in someone and then that someone they confide in turns in a fury against the one who wounded them, that tends to actually make the situation a lot worse, I find. I don't know. Have you seen that, Stephen? You know what I'm talking about? When someone brings in more anger into a situation, you're saying? Yeah, like someone, like someone I love was abused or hurt by someone, and then this person who's been abused now comes to me in grief and in pain, and they confide in me, and then if, if I respond by immediately becoming infuriated with the person mm. who had done this, and then I immediately leave the situation to get some kind of revenge on them, I just have never seen that actually help that person who's oh, been no, hurt. Oh, no, no. That, that makes it worse. I mean, really, because you're you're just exacerbating the situation. And, you know, um, when you feel like this great wrong has been done and you just you're you're fighting to receive what I would call temporal justice. Like what I mean by that is like worldly justice. You want to see that person in the courtroom and you want to see the gavel pound down and proclaim that they're guilty. You know, you desire that so much to the point that it consumes you. Well, you're not you're not thinking right. about that in a godly way anymore. Um, you know, is there a place for Christians to take other people to court over a situation? You know, some some would argue that yes, there is a situation where I mean, if someone has literally broken the law and you know uh, uh, done something to that effect, then maybe there's an aspect there. But uh, but of course, we have considerations. For example, in, in the Corinthian letters where he's saying, hey, you know, you're having problems among yourselves as Christians and you're taking it to the world to try to figure it out. And that's wrong. And he criticizes them sharply for that. And the the argument he makes is, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be used in that way and work it out among each other? And there, there's just there's something for us to think about there, because. When we thirst for worldly justice, we're not going to be getting the justice that God wants us to have. You know, it's, it's like right. it's like God is God is in His might and His eternal power. He's saying, "Okay, yes, I'm going to make this right," and He has sympathy on those who are grieving. You know, someone who has suffered in that way, God sympathizes with you. God's there; He wants to help you. But when you take that into your own hands and don't allow God to help. You know, that's really what happens. And I'm not saying we limit God's power, but there's the sense that we get in the way of it actually doing good in our lives. And, and we need to be very right. careful about and that. I think, yeah, I think, and that's the thing is Dinah's heart was hurt. And I think what Dinah really needed was for her brothers to comfort her, help her in her grieving, uh, you know, weep with her, um, just be there for her, you know, just going out and killing everyone, you know, it was not helping anything, you know, sometimes, and I think this is why God delays and, and maybe delays not the right word, why God waits is because sometimes the greatest thing is instead of just blatant justice, what we need is we need to heal our hearts, which takes time and which takes the the passing of justice for now, you know? Um, 
you know, I was listening to his sermon today on prayer and how God operates in the highest form of his will, which even though we have God's word, you know, we can't presume that we can know the depths of God's decision-making processes in response to our prayer, but we can know that God is doing what's in the greatest interest of his highest and greatest will and our will, our, our best interest, which ought to be very comforting, but which, which also though ought to make me search carefully. If God's answering my prayer this way, then I really need to be searching about how I can use this circumstance in a way that is most loving and glorifying uh, to God. And so anyway, I, I think something that's easy to miss in all this is just Dinah's heart and how hurt she must have been and just how the, the, the sons of Israel just totally blew it from helping their poor sister through this incredibly difficult situation that she was put into against her own will. And that is one thing that we do want to remember that, you know, I, I don't mean to say, you know, when I say that Dinah is very passive in this story, it's just because we don't have very much of her involvement in this. But, um, you know, her brother's focus and intent, uh, uh, um, you know, during all this is certainly misguided, but we can appreciate that they did have at least the love of their sister uh, at heart, we would say, right? I mean, that at mm-hmm. least they cared enough to actually do something about it from that standpoint. I mean, I think there are some families today mm-hmm. that maybe don't have that level of focus. I mean, I, I think that's something to be said too, too, though, when we're talking about, you know, we've kind of paralleled this among local congregations. You know, is there ever a situation where a wrong has been done against a fellow Christian and maybe we really don't care? Maybe we don't lift up our hands to help them. Maybe we're not there for them in the way that we ought to, to be, Mm. Um, you know, certainly don't go too far, but please do something. (laughs) You know, Uh, know, yeah. That just makes me think that there was another option here that Jacob's sons, when Shechem and his father, Hamor came to the house to ask for Dinah, they could have just been totally open hearted and told them that they had done something disgraceful. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have they could have tried to really tell them, like, look, you've done something evil. You have offended our entire family. You know, you've disgraced us, you've disgraced our sister. And what what's your answer to this? You know, in, in our in our estimation, this should bear the penalty of death. And so if if you desire our younger sister, how do you how do you respond to this offense that you've committed? You know, so they, they could have just wow. really laid it out. They could have laid out their hearts, they could have laid out the punishment they feel was necessary. They could have just communicated clearly about it. And they could have even let Shechem and Hamor see how grieved they were. But instead, they just totally fabricate the whole circumstance. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, too, because that is exactly what Pharaoh did. And that's exactly what Abimelech did. They're honest and open with Abraham. And, you know, Abimelech He's is right, honest and right. open yeah. with Isaac and saying, look, this, yeah. is, this is a wrong thing that you've done to me. You know, how yeah, can you, great point. Great point. And and and, uh, and and they are very honest and, and forthright with that. So they had that opportunity to do that, but instead they they fabricate this story. Very good point. Well, we thank you so much for listening today, and uh, we hope that it's been useful and beneficial for you. It's definitely been beneficial for us. Um, what do you mm-hmm. think, Brent? Yeah, absolutely. Always 
always great when we see so many things we didn't know we would see into the text. It's a real treat, real treat. All right. Well, next time, Lord willing, we'll be getting into Genesis chapter 35. (laughs) I was at a different passage, so I had to look back. Uh, We'll be going into Genesis 35, um, probably more than one chapter in the next one. But uh, until that time, we hope you can study well and be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.